And I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there are stacks of them on the table at the front door. I invite you to grab one and turn with me to hold in your hands the Word of God. And as you turn there, I want to just make a note that this morning our focus has been and will continue to be the promises of God. We're going to see that in our text in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 15. But uh, before we even dive in there, I just want to make a note that my hope today in preparing and in bringing this is completely built on this promise from God. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. It's God's promise to us this morning about his word. So you just sat down, so I want to invite you to stand up. To honor the reading of God's word. We're going to read out of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to read verse 15 down to the end of the chapter. And when I'm done reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you are glad this morning that God has given us his word, you respond back to me. Thanks be to God. 2 Corinthians 1, 15. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us And given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God indeed. You can go ahead and have a seat. I want to start again with just a a brief word again of prayer to pray for God's help in what we're undertaking now. So pray with me. Jesus, you said that heaven and earth will pass away, but your words will not pass away. So we pray, Father, that Christ, your Son, would shine forth pure and clear and unobscured from your word. Spirit of God, we pray that you would open our minds to understand your scriptures. And we pray that what's going to happen right now would be that you would speak to us, your people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
Well, in this section of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is um, talking about his travel plans, what he had planned to do, what had changed, what he ended up doing. And in the midst of talking through these plans and relaying them to the Corinthian church, he drops this statement in verse 20, this massive statement that has implications for all of the scriptures from beginning to end, for all of redemptive history from beginning to end. And we find it in verse 20, and that's where we're going to zero in today. We're going to spend our time this morning looking at verse 20 of this chapter here. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. When you open up the Bible and you start looking through it, you'll find that there are so many promises that in order to put together one sermon or uh, one package, you've got to take, uh, you could take many different angles or many different lenses that you could view these promises through. So we're going to take one particular angle today. We're going to look at promises for daily sustaining grace in the Christian life. So we're going to go through a lot of scripture today. I'm going to, I'm going to give you lots of promises that are found in God's word. There are too many for you to write them all down, and sometimes I might not even give the reference for all of them. But because I want you to have confidence that these are from God's Word, and because I want you to be able to refer back to them, uh, I have a handout. There'll be a few on the back table, not enough for everyone. There'll be about a dozen, but then uh, we'll send them out this week uh, as well by email so that you can have them and, uh, and look at them again and know where they are in the Word. Um, The organization this morning, we're going to go through seven different categories of promises for daily sustaining grace in the Christian life. And then there's going to be a bonus category of what God has not promised the Christian. But before we jump into those seven categories, I want to say a word about the audience, the audience for the promises of God. And um, my answer to who is the audience for the promises of God is that The promises of God are for the people of God. And you can find that or justify that in our text this morning. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. So if you are to claim the promises of God and claim all of these promises that we're going to go through this morning, that we're going to hear, you must be trusting in Christ. You must have trusted in Christ for your salvation. You must find in his life and in his death and in his resurrection your only hope for life and in death, for this life and for the next. And if that doesn't yet describe you, then the promises of God are not yet yours to be claimed. And if that feels like walls are being put up right from the very introduction of the sermon, or that exclusion is where we're starting from to keep you out, then we're ready for the first category of our promises, and you need to hear these. First category of promises are promises for salvation and preservation. God has promised to save and preserve his people. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And in speaking of his people, of his sheep, he says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. So there's protection 
in Christ for those who come to him. Protection from within and from without. Jesus will never give you up, and he will never allow anyone to take you away from him. The Apostle Peter, in the very earliest days of the Christian church, on the day of Pentecost, he stood on the streets of Jerusalem, and he proclaimed, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And on that day, 3,000 heard and responded and were saved, calling upon the name of the Lord. But that message has never been just for a certain kind of people. That message has never been just for the streets of Jerusalem or just for the Jews. But from the, the, uh, from the prophets, from Isaiah 45, God calls out. He calls, look to me, turn to me, and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. So God's arms are open wide this morning. So come to him and claim his promises. Our second category of promises this morning are promises for relationship with God and for his presence. Promises for relationship and presence. The Apostle Paul, a few chapters after we're looking at this morning in 2 Corinthians 1, in 2 Corinthians 6, he's building an argument that we, we, the church of God, are the temple of God. And in building that argument, he quotes God's words. I will make my dwelling among them, and I will walk among them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. That promise is huge in the prophets, and especially in Jeremiah. When Jeremiah is unfolding the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, he says that God says, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. But this concept wasn't new to the prophets. You look back to Moses in the giving of the law. In Moses' day, God says, I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. But this promise didn't come with the Mosaic law. You can go back further to the days of Abraham. And actually, the text we were looking at this morning, out of Genesis 17, and our confession of sin and assurance of pardon, that Abraham, when God came to him and gave him the covenant of circumcision, and he made him promises, promises for land, and promises for descendants, starting with Isaac, to build a nation from him, he says to Abraham, I will be their God. But this didn't start with Abraham either. This was the original reality in the Garden of Eden. Before sin entered in, Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve, beyond all the blessings they had in meaningful work, delightful work, tending to the fruit trees, um, naming the animals, being naked and unashamed, having a sinless marriage, all the blessings that they enjoyed in Eden, the greatest of them was these, that they walked with God. They had intimate fellowship with God in the garden. Sin broke that fellowship, and that intimacy was replaced by warrior angels at the gate with flaming swords that communicated to them, keep out. And you can read the whole rest of the Bible, the whole rest of the scriptures, as restoring what was lost in Eden, in that intimate fellowship, to be long to God and for him to belong to you and to be with him in a real and personal and intimate way. Well, we've applied some promises here that were made to Israel, and we've taken them and we've applied them to 
ourselves as the New Testament church, primarily Gentiles, I expect. And I want you to understand that this is intentional and that there's good reason for it. So I want you to turn in your Bibles with me. If you're in 2 Corinthians 1, you don't have to go far. Turn over to 2 Corinthians 6. As I mentioned earlier, Paul is laboring to um, teach the Corinthians that they, as God's church, are the temple of God. And if you look in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16, I'm going to read verses 16 to 18. I will make my dwelling among them. This is in the middle of verse 16, but Paul strings together uh, a quotation here. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And while when we look in 2 Corinthians 6 right there, it looks like one quotation from the Old Testament. It's actually a conflation of at least five or six. He starts in Leviticus 26. That's his first quotation, Leviticus 26, 11 and 12. He moves to Isaiah 52, 11. There's a trace of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 20, 34 in there. And, in the, in, and it just increases as it goes to the end. There's echoes of 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah 43. And they're all woven together in there in those three verses. And you also notice that those quotations, those uh, references to the Old Testament cover the whole of the Old Testament, the trifold division of the Hebrew Bible. He's hitting on all parts of it. He's hitting on, in Leviticus 26, that's in the context of the giving of the law. Ezekiel 20 is in the context of coming back from exile. And he's putting all of them together. And then he says in chapter 7, verse 1, following on, since we have these promises, beloved. And if you look in the beginning of the letter, the letter is written to the church of God at Corinth and just as much to the church of God in Lakewood. We have these promises. When we look into those 39 books of the pre-Christ Old Testament, This is our family history, and these are our promises to claim in Christ. Okay, so that aside, putting that aside aside and returning to our promise here, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a more foundational promise in all of the scriptures than this. Promises for relationship with God and for his presence. Along with relationship, God promises presence. Remember, Joshua on the doorstep of Canaan, tasked with taking over from Moses, leading a people who had been slaves for 400-some years and then camping for the next 40. Now he's going to lead this army against the Canaanites, and he's going to conquer them all. That's his task. And as he stands there, the angel of the Lord appears to them and gives him this promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But again, that promise is not just for Joshua. The writer of Hebrews, which we'll see in the coming weeks, picks that up and says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. 
What can man do to me? So God is with us, and we draw our confidence from that. Similarly, with some, uh, with some parallels, Jesus, as he stood on the mountain to ascend back to heaven after he'd completed his work on earth, he gave the great commission to his apostles, which probably seemed just as impossible as Joshua's task. But his promise for them to give them confidence and to send them forward to actually accomplish this was, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And think in the context of a child, in terms of what gives more comfort and what gives more confidence to a child who's facing a scary situation, a scary path to walk through. Is it to give them more information about the circumstances that they're walking through, about the path and what surrounds it? Or is it to assure them that no matter what happens and no matter what you face, daddy will be with you. Mommy will hold your right hand through the whole thing. And that is exactly what God promises for us through the prophet Isaiah. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. These promises, promises from God, I will be your God. You will be my people and I will be with you and I will never leave you nor forsake you. These have to be secured in Christ. To link back with our main text today, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. It has to be so for these promises. We can see it here so clearly. That for God, holy as he is, righteous as he is, transcendent as he is, to stamp his name on the people that we are, to stamp his name on us, that we would be known by his name and belong to him and he belonged to us. Something has to be uh, brought together. Something profound has to happen. It was clear from Genesis 2 that a divine rescue was necessary and a divine rescuer who is Jesus Christ. Well, we need those promises first because God explicitly promises something else for us in the Christian life. Namely, our third category, which is that God promises difficulty and he promises hardship for the Christian life. David wrote, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And David lived that again and again, didn't he? He was teaching from experience. The Apostle Paul, likewise, when he wrote to his protege Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. It was true for Paul, it was true for Timothy, and he taught that it's going to be true for all who desire to follow Christ. Jesus himself said, in the world you will have tribulation. That's a promise from God. We will have tribulation. Persecution and affliction for the Christian are promised to be certain, and they're promised to be many. It's the nature of sojourning in the wilderness of waiting for a better country, of waiting for a heavenly country. That should encourage us. That's weird, right? You guys are paying attention. That should encourage us, these promises for affliction. Here's why. Peter said, we covered this in Sunday school last week, Beloved, do not be surprised 
at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So when trials come and we're not expecting them, we haven't fully grasped this promise from God that affliction and persecution will be a part of our Christian life. And trials come and we find it strange. And we are surprised. And so we're not prepared to respond to them. But if we can believe that persecution and affliction, many are the afflictions of the righteous, if we believe that, and we're praying for God to prepare us for it, when it comes, we can fulfill the very next thing that Peter says. This is 1 Peter 4, that was 12, now 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. We're putting barriers in our way to rejoicing if we are surprised and if we find it strange when when the trials come and hit us. But if we are preparing and believing that they are promised, then we may actually be able to respond with rejoicing when trials come. And take heart, for Christ has overcome the world. And because Christ has overcome the world, he can make this promise to us that you all know well. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. I believe and I'm convinced that if you are a Christian, that the things that you really want deep down, that you really desire and long for, are for yourself to be sanctified, to grow and mature in the faith, and for those around you to see fruit born in their lives, to see people saved, to see the gospel go out to the ends of the earth, for Um, people to be gathered into the church, loved and grown in their spiritual lives. We swim in a sea of promises that the world makes to us. You can call them lies that distract us and pull us away. But I really believe that deep down, the things we want are that spiritual growth in our lives and those around us. We sang earlier that God promises to sanctify to us our deepest distress. And that's bound up in Romans 8, 28, this promise that he will work all things together for our good. He brings what we really want through all things, including the difficulty and the distress. Well, if you need even more hope and even more encouragement in the midst of those promises for difficulty, you will enjoy the next category, the fourth category for sustenance through difficulty. So God will sustain through difficulty One of my favorite verses in all the Psalms, a promise. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Psalm 55, 22. Jesus called, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. And we sang these words earlier, precious words, fear not, I am with you, be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And now hear the difficulties and hear the promises in the midst of them. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. 
So in summary, you're hearing them again. There are burdens. There are yokes. There's weariness. There's passing through rivers and walking through fire. But because we are his and he is ours and because he's with us, his promises are to sustain, establish, uphold, strengthen, and help. And he will protect through every difficulty and every danger. It's promised from God. Our fifth category, speaking of those things a minute ago that we really want in the Christian life, what you really want deep down as a Christian, sanctification and growth. Our fifth category is promises from God to sanctify and to grow his people. Paul wrote to uh, the Philippian church, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church. He said, this is the will of God. We as the church, rightly so, spend a lot of time thinking about and praying for and talking about the will of God, wanting for it to be established, wanting for us to be able to discern it in our own personal lives and in our church. And Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church right here that the will of God is your sanctification, 1 Thessalonians 4. And in speaking of your complete sanctification, he also wrote to the Thessalonian church, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And in, do, and in saying that, he grounds the sureness, the certainty of your complete sanctification in the very faithfulness of God himself. It's hardly a more bedrock thing he could have rooted your sanctification in than the faithfulness of God himself. The sixth category of promises from God is that reaping will follow sowing. A great promise today for Reformed Heritage Church as we send them off, that reaping will follow sowing, and equally so for us at Redeeming Grace. The mission of the church given to us in the Great Commission is to go and make disciples and baptize and teach and gather into churches and plant churches And all of that involves scattering gospel seed, sometimes in a targeted way and sometimes indiscriminately scattering the seed of the gospel. We need this promise from Galatians 6. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And this one from Psalm 126, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, will come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. And so, in the the Lord, your labor is not in vain. So don't grow weary. Don't give up. Scatter that gospel seed, and in due season you will reap, even if the sowing is with tears. The reaping will be with shouts of joy. Seventh category, promises for the end. Eschatological promises. Promises for the end of time. Jesus promised three times in the last chapter of our Bibles, Revelation 22, three times he repeats, surely I am coming soon. And Paul told the Colossian church, meaning the Thessalonian church, when he comes and when we meet him, we will always be with the Lord. 
The promise for the Thessalonians and the promise for us is that when Jesus comes, we will always be with him. Even as our sanctification in our Christian life goes up and down and twists and turns now, then, once he comes, we will always be with him. That's a promise from God. And when he comes, Christ will destroy every rule and every authority and power and death will be swallowed up in victory, finally, for all time. And that is coming to, finally, the consummation of the restoring process that has been at work since Eden. Hear this from Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. We've heard that promise before, have we not? Many times this morning. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Precious promises from God. Well, I promised you after the seven categories, there would be a plus one of what God has not promised to the Christian. We will look in vain in the scriptures to find many promises from God about his timing, about his timing of how and when he will fulfill these promises that he has made to his people. We just talked about promises for sowing and for reaping, but we don't know when the spiritual autumn will come. We don't know when the time for harvest will come. The spiritual spring, the time for scattering seeds, for planting, for watering, it may extend for many years, even beyond our lifetimes. So the call, which is so prevalent in the Psalms, to wait upon the Lord and to be patient, including uh, this call from Peter. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so, in this life, we walk by faith, not by sight. Faith in knowing and believing that these promises are true and will certainly be fulfilled, even though we don't see when or how. So, let's recap Seven categories of promises for the Christian, for the daily Christian life. Promises for salvation and preservation. Promises for relationship with God and for his presence. Promises for difficulty and for sustenance through that difficulty. Promises for our sanctification. Promises that reaping will follow sowing. And finally, that Christ will come back and for all that he will bring with him. And there are so many more. Um, You should not think that these are like the seven categories. These are seven categories of which there are many more and many more promises. God's promises are absolutely everywhere throughout the Bible. So what we've done so far as we turn to application, what we've done so far is a necessary but not a sufficient uh, exercise if we are to know and experience all that God has for us in the promises of his word. What we've done in cataloging cataloging and speaking 
and hopefully learning and internalizing the promises of God is absolutely necessary. But we must also apply them. We must also take these promises and drive them into our souls. We must bring them to bear on our lives. Charles Spurgeon said, if there is one fact, one doctrine, one promise in the scriptures, which has produced no practical effect upon your temper or upon your conduct, then be assured that you do not truly believe it. So Mr. Spurgeon is saying that if we take one of the promises that we've seen this morning and we look at it and we say, yes, I understand it, yes, I agree with it, but then we look in our lives and we can't see any way that it's made a difference for how we respond to bad news, how we um, deal with conflict, how we respond to disappointment, or in some way see how it changes our attitudes or our actions or our responses, then what Spurgeon says is the root problem is you don't really believe it. Well, that's a little bit difficult because my question is, if I do see the promise and I agree with it, how do I move toward actually believing it in a way that changes my life, that changes my attitudes, that changes my responses? Well, I think John Bunyan can help us with that. Um, John Bunyan's allegory on the Christian life, Pilgrim's Progress, uh, follows Christian on his journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And at a certain point on this journey, for a long stretch of the journey, Christian's traveling companion is hopeful. So hopeful and Christian are walking along at a certain point, and the path is very rough. Christian's feet are hurting. And so they look to the side, and there's another path. And it's paralleling the path they're on. They know this to be the right path, the narrow road. But they look over, and this path looks more pleasant, and it's heading in the same direction. So let's, let's hop over to that path. And they do. And they travel for a while. And then a raging storm comes, and they get hit with wind and rain, and floods are washing by, and they can't see the other path, the true path anymore, and they know that they are in trouble. So they turn around, and they start backtracking, trying to get back to what they know to be the true path that leads them to the celestial city. Well, at a certain point, they give up because they just can't fight against the storm. So they lay down to sleep, and they're woken in the morning by giant despair who kicks them, and they stand up, and they start trying to explain to him, and Giant Despair is not interested in their explanation. So he hauls them off to the dungeon in Doubting Castle. So in Doubting Castle, in the dungeon, Christian and Hope will spend four days. They are deprived of food, deprived of water, deprived of light, deprived of, deprived of anything good. But what Giant Despair provides to them is a beating, verbal abuse, and then finally his version of mercy where he presents them with several different options to make an end of themselves. And Christian actually is tempted by the offer. He's considering, he's weighing his options. But it's hopeful who exhorts him to patience, reminds him that the Lord has delivered them in the past and pleads with him to be patient, brother. Don't do anything rash. That's where we're going to pick up the story. So it's on Saturday, the fourth day 
about midnight. They began to pray, and they continued in prayer till almost break of day. Now, a little before it was day, good Christian, as one half amazed, broke out in this passionate speech. What a fool I am, lying here in a stinking dungeon, when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that will, I'm persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Hopeful responded, that is good news, good brother. Take it out and let's try it. So Christian pulled it out of his bosom and began to try at the dungeon door, whose bolt, as he turned the key, gave back and the door flew open with ease. Christian and Hopeful both came out. Then he went to the outward door that leads into the castle yard, and with his key he opened that door also. And he went to the iron gate, for that must be opened too. But that lock was very hard, yet the key did open it. Then they thrust open the gate to make their escape with speed, And they went on and came to the king's highway, and so were safe, because they were out of despair's jurisdiction. Well, the obvious first level here, in connecting with what we've already talked about today, is that the key was called promise that delivered the Christian from doubt and from despair. Right? Sometimes the allegory is just right there for us to interpret. The key is called promise. The promises of God are the key to freeing us from doubt and despair. But importantly, notice, Christian had that key for four days. Christian had the promises, had the key called promise in his pocket four days in the dungeon. So something more needed to happen to make that key useful to him. So how did it in the story become useful? actionable, actually freeing to them in the story? Well, there were a few means. Christian friendship, spiritual conversation, patience, waiting, and fervent prayer. The type of prayer that goes from Saturday night into the Lord's Day morning. These were the means that that brought Christian to realize, I have the promises right here. I have what I need to be freed from doubt and despair right here in my bosom. What if Christian had been on his own? What if Christian had been a lone wolf Christian walking the Christian life all by himself and found himself in a giant despair's dungeon? Christian would have been another skeleton in giant despair's graveyard, lying there with the key called promise in his pocket. The lesson being for us that we need one another. We need one-on-one discipleship. We need uh, to gather together for fellowship and the type of fellowship where we pray together and where we remind one another of the promises of God that apply to, the, to one's life in the context of care and relationship and prayer, bringing the promises from one to another. We need this if we are to survive in the Christian life and to have the fullness of joy that Jesus prayed for for us. And if you walk out of here today, as I hope many of us do, with a renewed focus and a renewed commitment to know and apply the promises of God, you need to know also that you don't just do it for yourselves, but you do it for one another. You do it for your brothers and your sisters.
Well, my final point, and as I come there, um, I remember last week Jason closed with a quote from Dutch theologian Herman Bavink. Um, today, I'm going to close with a quote from British nanny Mary Poppins. Okay? <laughs> when Mary Poppins had finished her work with the Banks family in London, and um, the wind was changing and the kids knew that she was about to make her exit, she was tucking them into bed and Michael asked her, will you stay if we promise to be good? And Mary Poppins replied to him, that's a pie crust promise, easily made and easily broken. Well, the promises of God are not pie crust promises. They are not easily broken and indeed will never be broken because they were not easily made or easily secured. The promises of God come to the people of God free of cost because they were purchased at infinite cost by our Savior, by Christ. How can God make this promise that we sang and heard before? When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. How can God make that promise to us? God can promise that the waters will not overwhelm us because the flood of God's justice overwhelmed Christ at the cross. God can promise to us that the flame will not consume us because the flame of God's wrath consumed Jesus Christ at the cross. The flood of God's justice collided with his mercy at the cross. The fire of God's wrath uh, collided with his love and his mercy at the cross. And the collision was in the body, even in the soul of Jesus Christ, the God-man, as he hung on the cross. And that's what it took to secure the promises of God for us that we delight in this morning. A couple months ago, we heard in teaching from Hebrews chapter 7 that Christ is the guarantor of a better covenant. And we learned that morning, at least I learned that morning, uh, that that means that Christ is our surety. He is the one who guarantees this new covenant. Many grand promises have been made throughout history by many different political systems, leaders, economic uh, lines of thought, and they have fallen flat and not been fulfilled, but have often resulted in the opposite things they promised because their guarantors, those who guaranteed them, couldn't secure them. They were making promises that they couldn't guarantee but not so for the Christian. Jesus Christ, our surety, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. By him, all things were made, and in him, all things hold together. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power, and all the promises of God find their yes in him. Amen. All glory be to Christ. Let's pray together. God, we pray, we pray that you would drive your promises into our hearts and into our minds. Help us to know them, 
Help us to cherish them. Help us to find hope in them and share them with one another in the context of care and relationship and prayer. Help us to know and believe these promises and exhort one another with them. Like you did for Abraham, we pray that you would make us grow strong in the faith as we give glory to you, fully convinced that you are able to do what you have promised. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.